Actually, the first ever commercial Christmas card was created in 1843, commissioned by a man named Henry Cole and drawn by an artist, James Horsley. 1,000 cards were actually printed, and about 30 still exist. Recently, one of these originals sold for $10,000. The very first Christmas card was three inches by five inches, and it consisted of three panels. The left panel shows a man feeding some hungry people. The right panel pictures a woman clothing the poor. But in the middle of the card, the center panel, the card's focal point, there's a family. It's actually a three-generation family, kids and parents and grandparents. At the very center of the very first Christmas card ever produced, there is a family. And how appropriate is that? For if we were to go back in time, back, back, back in time, we would find that Christmas has always been a family affair. Christmas is a celebration of family life. This is certainly what God intended when he created Christmas. God identified himself as a family unit, and then he sent his only son to join a family on earth. From the beginning, Christmas was about family. Realize the Christmas story predates God's spirit overshadowing the virgin womb of a maiden named Mary. It begins before the child is born and laid in a manger. Shepherds and wise men come much later. No, Christmas starts here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For here the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, today we continue a series of messages we've entitled, What Christmas is All About. Last week we discussed Christmas is about connections, how it connects past and present and east and west and young and old and mundane and miraculous and even heaven and earth. On Christmas Eve, in a few days, we're going to dwell on the idea Christmas is about worship. And on the Sunday after Christmas, we'll explore Christmas is about faith. But this morning, I want our focus to be Christmas is about family. And for all four lessons, our text comes from the book of Hebrews. And here's a bit of background on this important book of the Bible. Hebrews was written to Hebrews. It was penned to Jewish believers in Jesus. Which reminds me, did you hear of the newlyweds? They were lying in bed one morning. The hubby, he says to his wife, he says, honey, why don't you go and make us some coffee? She tells him, oh, no, 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 that's your job. It's not my job. Well, the man answers, says who? Well, his wife responds, well, the Bible tells us so. The fellow snapped back, the Bible? Where in the world does the Bible say anything about a husband making the morning coffee? And that's when the wife replies, it's Hebrews, not Shebrews. Actually, these Hebrews were beneficiaries of this book. 
They were Jews trying to break free from the traditions that bound them. Realize Judaism was an old and proud and unbending religion that exalted various institutions, Moses and the law and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the angels. And yet the Jews who had believed in the gospel, they needed to know that their Savior Jesus had eclipsed and superseded all these institutions of Judaism. Jesus was a better priesthood, and he was a better sacrifice. He was superior to Moses and to the temple and to the law and even to angels. You know, in Judaism, the angels of God were highly revered since they dwelt in God's presence in heaven. They were envied by men on earth. Angels had an access to God's glory. And in addition, angels were heroes. They were active in God's dealings with man. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen said that the conveyance of the law to Moses came through angels. Some Jews practically worshipped the angels. But here in our text, Hebrews chapter 1 we learn that angels are and always have been mere servants. Notice verse 7 of Hebrews 1 calls them ministers. Again in verse 14, they are servants to us. It says ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. Whereas Jesus is God's only begotten Son. You see, the angels in heaven are God's hired hands, whereas Jesus sits enthroned at God's right hand. Hebrews chapter 1 takes us back in time before the first Christmas. The author quotes Psalm 2, which is a prediction of God's coming king, the Messiah, the one who will reign from Israel. All the nations are his possession. This king's rule extends to the ends of the earth. He'll govern with a rod of iron. Everyone will obey him. And then God says to this future king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This coming earthly king will be God's own son. In this same verse, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, the writer of Hebrews again quotes God. This time, 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 Here God is speaking to a man after his own heart, King David. And he promises David an heir who will reign for all eternity. Again, the Messiah is in the viewfinder. And God says of him, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. See, God spoke of Jesus not just as a king and a ruler, but as a member of his own family. Don't underestimate the lofty status of, that Messiah is given when God calls him his son. To Jews, the concept of sonship is charged with heavy theological implications. Here's how the Jewish mind works. If you're the son of a bumblebee, that makes you a bumblebee. If you're the son of a cow, then that makes you a cow. If you're the son of a man, then that makes you a man. But if you're the son of God, then that makes you God himself, his very essence. Begotten of God is to be divine. This is why John 3.16 calls Jesus God's only begotten son. So when the author of Hebrews here quotes God in Psalm 2, 
you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in Psalms, 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He is ascribing these passages to Jesus and he is making a bold declaration. Jesus is no mere servant of God. He is far more than a servant or an angel or a messenger. Jesus is God in the flesh. Even today, when Jews come together in the synagogues or on their Sabbath or at their feast times, they quote the great Shema. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Jewish creed, the motto of monotheism. This sums up Jewish faith. There is but one God. And Christianity agrees. There is only one true God. But the Shema itself reveals deeper truths about God. For the Hebrew word translated one is the word ikad, which speaks not of an absolute unity, but of a compound unity. When the rabbis explained ikad, they would hold up their fist, and they would point to this one fist, but it was made up of five distinct fingers. It's a bound together kind of unity. And this is how God speaks of himself as one God, but three persons. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God created the first man, we're told, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice God uses plural pronouns to describe himself. He speaks of us and our. When God speaks of himself, he does so as a plurality. And this is what God does throughout all the Bible. God is one God, but he exists in three persons. Even the Hebrew word translated God teaches this doctrine. The name Elohim is the plural form of El. God is one God, but he exists in three distinct persons. This is the triune nature of God, or what we call the Trinity. Once there was a little girl, she was asked if she knew the term for the nature of God. Well, obviously, the teacher was looking for the word Trinity. Instead, the little girl answered, the triplets. Well, she was close. She was right about God's threeness, but she had forgotten about God's oneness. I like this diagram. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet he's one God. All three members are equally God, yet all three are unique and distinct. Here's my point. God defines his very nature in terms of a family. He is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One member of the Godhead assumes the role of Father, another the role of Son. As God states in our text in Hebrews, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Here's a fascinating thought that you should consider. The eternal nature of God is like a family. Thus, is it any wonder when God created the first man, he put him in a family. Adam was created, then Eve. Then they were told to be fruitful and multiply. 
Which reminds me of a joke. Do you know what Adam and Eve were doing after God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden? They were raising Cain. Adam and Eve got to work on a family. The first institution, the first community structure that God established on earth was not a government or a school or a city hall or a temple or even a church. It was a family. And this is why family life is so sacred. And this is why the biblical definition for family is worth fighting for. The audacity of our modern world and its willingness to ignore 6,000 years of history and our cumulative wisdom, as well as sacred scripture, and redefine marriage and family life, it's appalling. Modern relationships and biblical families are not created equal. God's ideal is for one man and one woman in a lifelong marital commitment to raise children. Now, certainly some people can achieve a measure of success through inferior arrangements. We're foolish to think that an exception should make the rule. Just because a blind contestant can win a skeet shooting competition every once in a while doesn't mean everybody should close their eyes before they pull the trigger on a rifle. Realize biblical marriage is the preference of an all-wise and loving creator, a God who knows better than we. God configures or God considers the configuration of one man and one woman together for a lifetime that that arrangement provides kids the best chance of growing up healthy and whole and happy. The nuclear family should be favored over all other alternatives, not because I said so or you said so, but because God said so. And there's nothing unfair about a society recognizing the best configuration for a family, then promoting and protecting that arrangement for the greater good of its citizens. As a matter of fact, it's the compassionate thing to do. Here's the inescapable truth. When it came time for the holy, sinless, almighty, all-knowing God to join the human race, guess where he chose to be born? He was birthed into a family of one man and one woman united together in the bonds of marriage. Think of it this way. God left his heavenly confines for a barren land a land scarred by sin, a land of hate and anger and lust and death and selfishness. When Jesus came to earth, his new environs were nothing like he had left behind in heaven. Heaven has as much in common with earth as Hawaii has with Antarctica. This is why Jesus was born into the one earthly environment most like heaven, which was the family. Jesus was the son in heaven long before he was a son on earth. At Christmas, we talk about Jesus being born in Bethlehem or in a stable or that he was laid in a manger. But the best answer to the question, where was Jesus born? Is into a family. God chose a family of the man Joseph and his wife Mary to rear his son. Reminds me of a three-year-old named Blake. His mom and dad, they had been careful to teach him just how much Jesus loved him. And so one day, his dad asked the little guy, Blake, 
do you know where Jesus lives? Well, the father expected his son to say, heaven, or maybe in my heart, or even in Bethlehem, since it was Christmas. After thinking for a while, though, little Blake replied, he said, Dad, Jesus lives in our basement. Well, that made sense to Blake, since that's where the family stored their Christmas decorations. That's where the nativity scene was, in the plastic baby. Yet what a blessing it would be for all of us if it were true for every family that Jesus lives in our basement and in our living room and in our bedrooms and in our kitchen, that Jesus lives in the bowels of our homes, that he lives in the very place where my kids and grandkids run around and hang out, where our family has fun, where goodies are shared, where everyone is free to goof off and be themselves. Imagine if Jesus lived in the very heart of every home. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he knew he would be born in Bethlehem and later take refuge in the land of Egypt and ultimately be reared in Nazareth and one day visit Jerusalem's temple and travel the villages and countryside surrounding the Sea of Galilee. But his immediate destination was a family. And it wasn't a rich family or an opulent family, or a prestigious family, or a large family. In fact, Joseph and Mary's family was a poor and humble and nondescript family. You remember when Jesus was circumcised, Joseph couldn't afford the customary sacrifice, that of a lamb. He had to opt for the pauper's exemption, two turtle doves. I mean, that means that Joseph was dirt poor. It had probably been a while since he and Mary had had two quarters to rub together. And yet this family had ingredients money can't buy. It was a loving family and a loyal family and a worshiping family and an obedient family and a believing family. It was truly a little bit of heaven on earth. And that's why God chose their family to be a sanctuary for his son. I love this thought. Christmas is about family. It was in a family, a man and a woman, not yet intimate, but already betrothed and legally committed that the Holy Spirit worked in them a miracle of conception. And when the shepherds arrived, after receiving the news of the king's coming, when they came running to check it out for themselves, they found not a modern hospital, Not the accoutrements of of a royal court, not a mass unit of medical technicians, not even a military sentinel standing guard over a baby. No, they found a family. Even two years later, wise men handed over gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to what was still a family. The institution of the nuclear family is forever ennobled and exalted and dignified and glorified if for no other reason than Jesus was born into a family. And that means that if you have a family, and all of us do, we should pay special attention to our family this Christmas. For even if your family has been through some tough, some rough patches lately, don't give up on your family. Don't neglect or ignore your family, even if it's a dysfunctional family. 
When Jesus entered the world, he came to be part of a family. And I believe Jesus still targets families today. He wants to work a miracle in your family this Christmas. Remember, Jesus doesn't just love families in general, but Jesus loves your family specifically. You know, often when we think of the family of Joseph and Mary, we assume that they were a perfect family. I mean, they were the Waltons or the Cleavers of first century Nazareth. God wouldn't send his sinless son into a flawed family, would he? He must have picked a choice couple with a mint marriage, with a do-no-wrong siblings. We envision Joseph and Mary sharing a pristine, peaceful, idyllic life. No way did they have the kinds of hang-ups and issues and carry the baggage that we carry. Yet we're naive with our assumptions. At the time of Jesus' birth, Mary's just a little girl, barely a teenager. And Joseph has no experience in these matters at all. He's a construction guy, no less. You don't think in your heart that these people weren't full of apprehension and worry and fear and doubt? Of course they were. There's a movie entitled The Nativity Story that chronicles the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. One scene paints a picture of a nervous Joseph and Mary trying to sort out their predicament together. They're traveling the long, rocky road from Nazareth south to Bethlehem when they stop for the evening by a body of water. Mary's cooking a fish for supper that Joseph must have caught earlier that day. She says with a smile, the baby is moving. As she rubs her hand across her belly, Joseph looks at her with a mixture of excitement and concern. She asks him, you never really told me about your dream. Apparently, Joseph doesn't want to talk, but Mary tries to pry it out of him. No, really, tell me. Joseph leans in and he says, the angel came to me. He told me the child within you had been conceived by the Holy Spirit and that I should not be afraid. Mary is depending on this man. So she asks him again, are you afraid? Joseph whispers, yes. Are you? She replies, yes. They both giggle nervously. But Mary is thinking far into the future. She continues. She says, do you ever wonder when we'll know? When we'll know that he knows he's more than just a child? Will it be something he says? A look in his eye? Joseph offers a helpless shrug. It's obvious that he's aware of his own inadequacies. He confesses to Mary, I wonder if, if I'll even be able to teach him anything. I mean, the scene reminds me that these two were still just kids. They were just kids. If you think Jesus was born into a family that had it all together, let me suggest you need to think again. These were kids recoiling from events that had caught them off guard and changed their lives. And it put them in positions that were out of their control. They were a family, but by anyone's standards, they were just barely a family. I mean, Joseph and Mary had the odds stacked against them. If they'd come to me for counseling, I might have cautioned them to take a step back and go slower. If they'd asked their parents and the townsfolks what to do, they might have split up for good. 
Understand that Christmas miracle begins with a troubled relationship. A husband and his betrothed wife are struggling to even stay together. Joseph was contemplating an exit strategy, remember. Have Mary stoned or just send her away to a nearby city and let her start over. I mean, I don't care how much you've disliked your spouse. I'll bet you've never considered having them stoned. Gas chamber, maybe. Firing squad, perhaps. But not a stoning. For a long time, Joseph particularly had to work through some serious trust issues. Did he really buy the angel's explanation? He was trapped between believing the impossible or accepting Mary's infidelity. And that's just the start of a long list of challenges. I mean, here was a relationship where at first the wife was listening to God while her husband really wasn't. That sound familiar? This is a marriage that starts out with an unexpected pregnancy and all the problems that that can cause. Joseph and Mary are stressed out when they're forced to make a grueling trip home for the holidays. And obviously, Joseph had lousy health insurance. I mean, Mary gives birth in a barn. It's been said the reason Jesus was born in a stable was Joseph had an HMO. Imagine, too, their budget tightened considerably when Mary had to start purchasing swaddling clothes. And what about the family's forced exodus to Egypt? A relocation only added to the upheaval in their lives. It was true. Jesus' family got off to a rough start. Think it over and you'll agree. Jesus was born to a family facing many of the struggles today's families face. Mary and Joseph didn't have a perfect marriage. Yet Jesus, the one greater than the angels, still graced their family with his presence. That first Christmas, the Son of God chose to join a very, very imperfect family. And that's why there's hope for your family this Christmas. For your family might also be struggling. In the bowels and basement of your house, there's strife and anger and worry and friction. Perhaps your family is on the ropes. Maybe it's down for the count. Maybe there's a lack of trust between its members. Or you're hearing from God, but nobody else is. Or there's an unexpected pregnancy. Or some other surprising circumstance has heated up the pressure cooker you're living in and you're groping for some direction. Maybe it's a trip home or a visit from your in-laws that has you stressed out. Or perhaps it's the lack of health insurance or the kids are a drain or you realize that diapers cost more than swaddling clothes. And why, oh, why does your husband want to continue to chase his dream and move the family down to Egypt? You're just now meeting a few of your neighbors here in Bethlehem. Reminds me of the husband and wife who were in the midst of a squabble. They wanted to buy a new vehicle for Christmas. But they couldn't decide. He wanted a new truck while she had her eye on this fast, fancy new sports car. They argued for days over the decision. Finally, the wife, she laid down the ultimatum. She says, if I don't get something that'll go from zero to 180 in four seconds, you're going to experience a very lonely Christmas. Well, the husband bristled up. He didn't like her attitude. So on Christmas morning, there it was, marked by a bright red bow. 
a new bathroom scale. Funeral arrangements for the husband will be announced soon. If there is friction in your family this holiday season between husband and wife or parent and child, whatever you do, don't give up. Don't anybody give up. Even if your family is coming apart faster than gift wrapping on Christmas Day, there are still good tidings of great joy for Jesus wants to be part of your family. The Holy Spirit wants to overshadow you and yours and work a miracle in your midst. He wants to spread goodwill toward men and bring peace on earth and have it commence in your family. Jesus brings new life to dying hopes, fresh breath to stale relationships. Gordon MacDonald, he tells of a Nigerian lady that he met after a speaking engagement. This lady identified herself as a physician in a prominent hospital. She gave McDonald an obviously American name. That's when he asked her, no, what's your African name? And she immediately strung together several beautiful rhythmic syllables, as most Nigerian names are. Her name had a musical sound. Well, McDonald asked her, he said, what does your name mean? She replied, child who takes the anger away. Well, of course, Gordon McDonald, he sensed a good story here. And so he asked her to explain how she got her name. And this was her answer. My parents were forbidden to marry, but they loved each other. And they defied the family opinion and married anyway. At first, their parents refused to have contact with them until my mother became pregnant with me. When my grandparents held me in their arms for the first time, the walls of hostility came down. My birth swept the anger away, and that's the name my mother and father gave me. You know, this would also have been a good name for Jesus when he was born. For when you come to the manger and bow before the newborn king, Jesus sweeps away your anger and pride and prejudices and selfishness. Jesus doesn't just forgive us, though he does, but in doing so, he enables us to forgive others. He loves us in such a way that it causes us to love the person we formerly thought was unlovable. Christmas is about the harmony and the happiness that Jesus brings with him when we invite him to join our family. Author C.S. Lewis, he wrote a classic tale entitled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Perhaps you've seen the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's an allegory of the gospel. Aslan, the lion, he dies to save the young boy Edmund. Then Aslan rises from the dead to lead a campaign against the witch that's in control of the land of Narnia. The message, of course, is obvious. Revelation 5 refers to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus died to save us. Then he rose from the dead and he promises to return and free this world from the dominion of Satan. I once read an article about C.S. Lewis in his own personal struggles at the time that he wrote this story. He started work on the novel in a miserable period in his life, and his writing reflected his mood. Lewis recalled, 
At first, it seemed a bumbling story, flat and uninspired. But what turned it around was the introduction of the lion. Not only did Lewis finish The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but the series included six more novels. After the last story was complete, Lewis commented about the first. He said, only when the great lion Aslan came bounding into it did I stop bumbling. And the story began to move in its proper course. Aslan pulled the whole story together. And friends, when the king of the jungle, Jesus Christ, comes bounding into your life, your family too will stop bumbling and start pulling together in a proper course. In our text, the writer of Hebrews, he proves a vital point. To which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? Of course, the answer is none. It was only to Jesus that God declared him to be his son. It's God who defines himself in family terms as father and son, proving forever that Christmas is about family. For my family, 2011 was a special Christmas. Some of you were probably here that Christmas Eve. As I got up to preach, my daughter-in-law was in the throes of labor. Just before I took the pulpit, my son Zach, he texted me, pray, Jess is pushing. Well, when I finished the sermon that night, I looked at my phone again and up popped a photo of my grandson, Quincy. What a Christmas present. It was a Christmas I'll never forget. And as I think about it, almost all my Christmas memories are about my family. You can take away the presents and the tree and the decorations and the parties and the eggnog and even Kathy's pancakes on Christmas morning. They are really good. But you know, Christmas will still be Christmas to me as long as my family relations are healthy and intact. For Christmas is about family. And yet, why do we make it about so many other things? From supply chain worries to fighting the mob on Black Friday to who can overindulge their kids the most to stressing out on finding the right Christmas tree for the living room. Remember this Christmas what really matters. Prioritize your family. Work on your family. If there's a bridge that's been burned that needs to be rebuilt, do it. If there's a fence that needs mending or a hatchet that needs burying or a statement that needs to be made, get busy. I guarantee you, for the folks living in Mayfield, Kentucky this Christmas, It'll be about family. Christmas will be about family for them. People will lay aside their petty concerns. Even the loss of a car or a house won't be as nearly as important as the ability to hug the spouse and kids who survived that tornado. Everything in Mayfield, Kentucky will pale in comparison in light of their families. See, until we taste a tragedy, family can get familiar we can neglect the commonplace and the familiar face. Yet the Mayfield families have been reminded that no one should ever take their family members for granted. When your family gathers this Christmas, recall Jesus is looking for an entry into your family. 
The first Christmas was about Jesus joining a family. And during every Christmas since, Jesus looks for families who will open up and invite him in. You be the person in your family who opens the door to Jesus. Be the one who believes that Jesus loves your family and will work a healing in your family if needed. Remember this week that your family is just a prayer away from Jesus working a Christmas miracle in the people you love. Christmas proves that God's heart beats for every family, especially your family. Father, we thank you.